It's a, it's a joy to be here this morning. Uh, I drew the short straw. All the pastors of the retreat, I drew the short straw. And so I'm, I'm thankful that there's other men here. Okay? This is not Cornerstone Bible Church uh, Women's Church Plant. or you know, this is, There are men at this church, and uh, I do believe they are coming back. So they, they had a good time, but since they already know either of the men, they're really thankful for the time spent time fellowshipping. Uh, so good for the brothers just to sharpen one another and shoot one another and uh, encourage one another. I say shoot one another because we played paintball yesterday, and uh, it looks like I have literal bullet wounds in my body. Okay, all these guys have the dark pur- purple bruises, and you know, one brother was wearing shorts. Right? This guy's like diving on rocks and running through thorns, and he looked like he was literally in a war, but it was a good time, and we had a, we had a really good time of fellowship and time in the Word, and so I just want to thank you uh, women, especially you know you, you wives, just for uh, letting us go and spend time in fellowship, so needed, and so we pray even that you will know the benefits, the benefits of the time, that you will experience the fruit of just what the men have uh, experienced together, so there were a uh, couple single guys who were questioning, like, of all the Sundays they had to miss, like, why this one? When all the single guys are gone, why did they miss when all the single girls are here? Okay? I told them, you know, if you want to come, I got a bar. Uh, they weren't manly enough, so they need to stay for you longer and become more manly. So next, they'll be ready for you guys. They're going to come back, and they will be ready for the single women. That's our prayer. Uh, this morning, though, I want to I want to preach on trials. Um, I want to begin at the very beginning of James chapter one. And there's so much going on in our world, right? There's so much uh, brutality, so much fear, so much war, so much strife. You know, we have what's going on in Iraq. We have. Virginia Tech, we have 9-11, but the reality is that even those trials, they're far removed from us. We watch it on news and we we see the agony, and yet unless you know somebody, there's still that sense where you watch it on TV, but you can't almost distinguish truth from fiction, news from movie. And so those trials are happening nationally nationally, but maybe not intimately, maybe not present within your own hearts. But that doesn't negate the fact that individually, or maybe even in this church, that there are trials, difficulties, struggles that are brutal in nature, that are inflicting. And so we come to the book of James this morning. And I'll tell you at the beginning, the title of the text, the title of this message is Hidden Mercy. Hidden mercy, the blessings of trials. Because James, what he does is he gives us the description, the prescription of how we're to look at a trial, how we're to interpret, how we're to exegete our experience. Right? That's what we all do. We exegete our experience. We spend our life trying to figure out why this is happening, what I'm supposed to do with it. And the world has no reference, they have no means to interpret life except through psychology, through sociology, uh, religious religions, 
their own means to try to interpret what's going on in their life. The Bible tells us how we're to exegete and interpret our own life. And so let me begin by reading James chapter 1. Just verses 1-4. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Gracious God, we again come to You, to Your Word, not to a man, not to just some message, but to the message, to the Word, Lord, the living Word. And we come to You and we cry out to You, Lord, that You first drew our hearts to the Scriptures. You drew our hearts to this text. Whether it was last week, whether it was last year, whatever You did, when You drew our hearts to the Gospel, when You drew our hearts to see that we were dead in our sins, that we were lost and blind, we no means to figure out interpret what's going on in this world, let alone my life. And You brought us Gospel and You undid us. You undid us in its power and You unfolded ourselves. You helped us see who who we are only after You showed us who You are. And it is in knowing You that we can then know ourselves. It is in beholding You that we first see our sinfulness And we see our desperate need for Christ. And yet that's only the beginning. We're consistently, perpetually, day after day, as You unfold Your character and Your name to us, that, Lord, it unfolds our true character. It unfolds our true nature to us. And in that, it causes us to come back to You again and to cry out to You, O Lord, help us. Help my unbelief. Strengthen these feeble arms with your mighty right hand. And lift us up, Lord. You are a glory. You're the lifter of our heads. Oh, Lord, let us into this text this morning and comprehend its depths. And then, letters of the word, let us learn how to exegete and interpret our own lives and to apply Scripture and truth to it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would allow me to be an effectual communicator and that, Lord, you would allow the brothers and sisters here to be effectual here so they might be effectual viewers. In your name we pray. Amen. Point number one, if you want to take notes and outline, is know what trials are. Know what trials are. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The book of James has 108 verses. And exactly... If you do the math, half of those verses would have an imperative. It comes out that there's 54 imperatives in 108 verses. And the very first command out of 54, out of all 54, the very first command in this text is to consider. To consider. Literally, the word means to lead out, to be chief, to miss the priority. And here, in a metaphorical sense, it means to lead out your thought, to make it chief in your consideration, in your understanding of what trials are. And here, in the tense of this, this verb, James commands us 
He urges us to make a decisive act. To make a decisive interpretational act upon our lives. How we're to approach our lives through the Bible. We interpret the Bible rightly so that we can then interpret our lives. We don't interpret our lives and then interpret the Bible. We come to Scripture first. And we consider the words of Scripture so that we might understand our lives. And so again, we're reminded and confronted with the radical need for imperatives, commands in the Bible. Most of the time we come across a command, it's not because we're so good at doing them. But we're so needful of them. We're so needful of the Bible's commands in our lives. And here's a command that jumps off the page and slaps us in the face in order to get our attention. When the Bible says to consider it a joy. God brings trials when God brings affliction. Whenever you, whenever you encounter, James says, whenever you encounter various trials, how will we take from this text here, whenever you encounter? It means that we don't know when these trials are going to come. We don't know what is coming. We don't know the sovereign hand of God. To encounter means to fall into, to experience to face, to have. It's the same word in uh, Luke 10 where the Good Samaritan, he fell amongst some thieves, he fell amongst some robbers. He's just going on his way, he's on the road, he's on the dirt path, and he falls into a band of thieves who brutalize him. Likewise, the Word of God here tells us that we, we fall into trials. The word trials here is an important word. Right? It's an important word this morning we're going to understand this text. It's the Greek word perasmos. Now, why this is important is because this is the very same word that James uses in verses 13 and 14. Read with me 13 and 14. Where James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and by his own Lust. Okay. Here's why this is important. Right. Same word, both verses, different context. Right. This is where we come to the great need to understand how to rightly interpret that word meaning isn't just determined by looking it up in a dictionary. Right? We understand that. We hear that enough. Right hermeneutics, right interpretation, right exegesis. So we don't just look up in a dictionary and say this is what the word means and then just slap it in the middle of the Bible. So though the same word is used in both places, its usage here is it's, it's two, different, two different understandings, two different means. It means either temptation or trial, but we have to determine which one does it mean. And so to illustrate, let me read 1 Timothy 6.9 to you. 1 Timothy 6.9 says this, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation. There's our word again. They fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. What's happening here with this usage, and likewise in James 13, 14, it's speaking of a temptation. It's speaking of something that comes from within and comes out. It comes from the heart and proceeds out again. That's what a temptation is. So money. Money is moral. It's neutral. It's nothing. But of man makes money a covetous thing. He longs and lusts after it, and it will plunge him into ruinous, destructive desires. That's what, that's what Paul says. 
He doesn't say money's the problem. He doesn't say money's evil. But he's pointing out that the heart is evil. And the heart is what concocts and produces temptation. It's in the heart. It's not money's fault. It's our hearts. So there's where we see the perosmos as a temptation. The other meaning would be found in 1 Peter 4.12. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. There it is again, the perosmon. The fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. And so here Peter points us to an external trial, if you will. This is the flaming arrows that are coming at us from something outside of us. And so this is key for us to understand back in James chapter 1. That's talking about external trials that on men. This is coming from the outside. So now we know two things. We know that we don't know when trials are coming. We don't know when trials are coming. We know that they will come at any time. And we know that trials, they come from the outside. We don't know when they're coming, but they come from the outside. But I want to go further and ask, what what are trials? What are trials? What does James really mean when he refers to trials? And, And how do we know that they have come? How do you and I know if a trial is upon us? How do we know? The book of James gives us some clues as to trials. These Jewish Christians were facing themselves some trials. They were scattered by persecution, according to verse 1. And the people who were subjected to exclusion because of favoritism in chapter 2, verse 1 through 2, they found themselves in trials. They were being looked down upon. They were being judged even by believers. Men who were being stiffed of hay later on in chapter 5. They were going through trial. So there's many trials going on in this letter. But how do you and I know when we are falling to a trial? How do we know when a trial has come? Will will a trial announce himself to you? Will you receive a a notice in the mail that that a trial is coming? Trials teach us that we should not expect them to knock at your door and, and politely ask if you have a few moments. The reason you are to be ready for the trial, as James says, is because a trial will barge in unannounced at any moment. And though he is by nature somewhat invisible, you can clearly see him and feel him when he arrives. And one does not know Mr. Trial so much by his voice or his aroma, but one knows him by his presence. Mr. Trial's arrival can be marked by the usual anxiousness and fear, doubt, crying, bitterness, or that helpless feeling that is in our hearts, the desire to flee to some distant land, or the more fairytale response of, of running to your bed and pulling the covers over your head, or that, that urge and that desperate trial, that desperate situation where you try to fix the circumstances and and do whatever you can with your earthly mind and power to change the midst of your own circumstances. These and other actions usually alert you that trial has come knocking. Or rather, that trial has come and he has kicked in the front door and he has made himself unwanted but at home in your life. 
He does not ask. He does not knock. He does not take off his shoes upon entering. Rather, he brazenly bashes down the door and enters with seeming malice, with weapon in hand. He seems unperturbed by helpless women and children. He will attempt to destroy whatever object he has and whatever object he has been sent to devour. Men, women, and children, all are susceptible to His coming. He shows no mercy, nor can He. has no emotions. He is like a whirlwind. He terrorizes, but not out of pleasure. That's what He does. But that's, that must not be merely how we perceive them. It's just a freak accident as merely an unwanted guest. This unwanted guest, furthermore, comes in all different shapes and sizes. James says very clearly, trials of of various kinds. Different kinds of trials. There are different kinds of trials. There's the the small trial. There's the mad boss. There's the flat tire. Difficult roommate, bombed exam, child not sleeping through the night. You know, all these trials that we face day after day after day. Then there's the medium trial. I don't know. Hell, verbal persecution, scorn because of you know, physical ailment, physical life ailments, sickness. That's my just my interpretation. I'm not saying that that's a medium trial. That could be a large, it could be a small, I don't know being fired. There's large trials, abuse that haunts you, disease that is killing you, lost father, lost mother. You know, your heart knows the affliction that you have been through. Anything contrary to your life of morality is a trial. Any hardship that comes upon you and that afflicts you, that's a trial. That's what a trial is. It's unwanted. It's unannounced. But secondly, we don't need to just know what trials are. We come to the deeper, deeper level here. Point number two is know why you need to be joyful in trials. Know why you need to be joyful. It's verse three. James says, knowing that the testing, the trying of your faith produces endurance. The trying of your faith produces endurance. There's a perversion of the gospel that's been around for a long time now. Health and wealth gospel. Prosperity gospel. Name it, claim it gospel. Word of faith movement. That's what it is. Its central idea is name it, claim it. Its central idea is that God is good and that God has saved you, the believer. And He's made you His son. He has adopted you. And therefore, God wants what is good for His children and He will give them whatever is good for them. Now there's a caveat here where what is good for you is not necessarily determined by what God says is good for you, but by what you determine is good for you. And so with that theology comes the name it, claim it, where if you have the faith to ask and believe and believe and ask, you'll receive what you've asked for. You pray in faith, and you'll receive in faith. 
And so those men stand behind their pulpits and they talk about God's love and they talk about His goodness and they talk about your need for faith. And they exhort you and demand you to have great faith and then God will answer your prayers. And then there's a flip side to that theology where they say, examine your life. How is your health? How is your bank account? And then, of course, a lot of people are saying, not very good. Don't have a lot of money. Kind of sick right now. Well, you know what the problem is? It's your faith. Your faith is weak. If you would just have faith in, that, in the goodness of God, you would have a full bank account. You would not be in a wheelchair. You would not be constantly sick. And so the problem isn't that God's not good, that you're not His child. The problem is that you don't have faith. That kind of gospel is, even at this moment, being preached. And even at this moment, is destroying, it is shredding lives with its lies. Because it's a complete perversion of the gospel, and it's a complete perversion of how you're supposed to interpret and exegete your life. Because the Bible tells us it's not your faith that will get you out of a trial. Rather, it's your faith that will keep you enduring in a trial. Know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Not only does the Word tell us that we should expect trials, that is, circumstances that we would never ask for, but the Word tells us to expect them and to be joyful in them. To be joyful in trials. Uh, this, this is not calling for spiritual optimism. This is not calling for some sort of Christian masochistic view on the difficulties and trials and pains of life. It is not, it is not calling us to say, of the pain. I love the pain not calling for. But it's giving us, and it's encouraging us to have a proper perspective, a proper exegesis upon the things that are going to and are and will falling upon our lives. Look at the first phrase of verse 3. Knowing that. This is the knowledge that allows you and I to perceive trials with joy. Knowing that. Knowing is a present active participle. It's a constant knowledge about something. And that knowledge is specific. It's a constant, perpetual interpretation of life. This is not, this is not gonna, this one sermon is not gonna fix the struggles that we're gonna have. And so James calls us, this is the, these are the glasses that we've gotta look at life the rest of our lives. We have to read our life through this lens. The reason this knowledge is so important is because if we do not learn why we can be joyful, then we will not be able to be joyful in trials. James tells us that we are joyful in trials because faith in God produces something more than any desire to escape a trial, and that's perseverance. Just stick with me for a little bit here. Perseverance translates the Greek word hupomone, which means to bear up under. It's, it's perfectly pictured by that sculpture of Atlas, where this 
strong, muscular man is hunched over and on his shoulders is the weight of the world. And though he's strong and mighty, he is, he is bending over because the pressure and the weight is so great. And yet, he continues day after day, year after year, week after week, millennial after millennium, bearing the weight of the world upon his shoulders. That's a sculpture. That's a picture of perseverance. It's you with a trial that feels as if the weight of the world has come upon you and you are ready to collapse. And you are crying out, what good can this bring? What good can weight bring upon my life? What God would do something so cruel as to seek to pulverize and crush me with this weight? Or, or even just simply to throw a wrench in my day? Despite our best efforts to run from trials, hide from trials, or attempt to reason them away, or pretend they are not there, the Scriptures instead, the Scriptures instead want to bring us face to face with our trials. Faith demands that we stare the trials down and peer inside them to find their divine purpose. Faith does not demand that you, you, you cry out to God and that will remove the trial. Faith demands that you bear up and you look at the trial and you look at it rightly. You look at it scripturally. And this is simply the call to see beyond the difficulties of the trial. The call to see beyond the difficulties of the trial in order to see the spiritual goodness that will come from the trial. This is x-ray vision of being able to look into the trial. It allows you to look through the ugly exterior in order to see the beautiful interior digress for a moment. Mighty storms, mighty storms sweep the seas, they sweep the lands. And it's chaos, it's destroying, it's ripping down houses, it's throwing and tossing cars, it's sinking ships. And yet, what's in the middle of a storm is what's called the eye of the storm. And it's where everything's completely calm. Where the wind, there's no wind. And if we would look through the whirlwind and look into the middle, into the eye of the storm and see the calm. That's how we have to look at a trial. Looking through the debris, impossible to do with the, with the natural man's eye, but possible to do through the, for the Christian. And not just possible, but absolutely needed. Absolutely needed. See, the world looks at trials... And to the world, that's hell. The, see, the world doesn't believe in, in you know, physical, literal hell, spiritual hell. So the, the hell for the world is the things that are going on in life. The pains and agonies, that's their hell. That's their, their chaos. An unbeliever looks at hardships and they curse God. But the Christian who was able to look at life with 20-20 vision because of the Scriptures, he, he looked at this and he responds with joy. I want to read to you, perhaps well known to some of you, a poem, a hymn by William Cooper. He was a Puritan. He himself endured tremendous trials and struggles. He writes this beautiful poem. He says this, God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright desires and works His sovereign will. 
Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by evil sense, but trust Him for His Behind a frowning face of smiling faith, His purposes will rise fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. That's sweet words from a man who could see the eye of the storm. He could look into the destruction and the havoc reaped through the trials of life, and yet know that there are far greater intentions behind God's hand. These are the words of a man who has exegeted his trials according to Scripture, and who has learn to interpret trials as a means of, of pleasure, not simply pain. But here's where it turns to you and I. We've spent long enough now. We know the real issue. This is not how you and I trials. This is you and I look at the arguments in our marriage, the difficulty in our marriage, the difficulties of our children, not enough money, not enough health, not enough this, too much of that. We don't look at it and respond in joy. And that is first, because we fail to believe that God is sovereign. And second, because we fail to believe that God is good. See, the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God in the midst of trials, that's what's behind this whole text. God is the one bringing these trials. By the sovereignty of God, I mean both His absolute authority over all things, His absolute sovereignty and control and providence over all things. His sovereignty rules over all. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and in all the deeps. Psalm 1, 5, 5 and 6. God's absolute sovereignty over all. God created the heavens and the earth. God made Satan. God planned Satan's fall. God even decreed man's fall. And yet through it all, God has a divine plan and divine purpose for His glory. That's God's sovereignty. That He is in complete and absolute control over everything. He knows every thought before you think it, every word before you speak it. He knows every hair on your head. All your days upon this earth are numbered. He knew you before the foundation of the world. He chose you to repent from your sin and turn to Christ. He planned the death of His own Son. He has planned our death as well. He knows when you will die, how you'll die, why you'll die. He knows where you'll be buried or if you'll be buried. There is nothing that God is not in absolute, complete, sovereign control over. Everything. The sovereignty of God must be seen as the prevailing backdrop of our trials. Indeed, the very pillar of trials, the very pillar of this text is the sovereignty of God. But not only is God sovereign, He's good. In fact, He's so good, He's so good that He is concerned about your faith even more than you are. God is concerned about your faith more than you are. Now, for some of you, maybe that's easy to believe. 
You say, you know, I really am not exercising much faith. I'm really not living for Christ like I should be. Questioning my faith, it's pretty obvious. I don't really trust God. I have a health and wealth gospel. I use God to get what I want. I try to manipulate Him and thinking that I'm living for Him so that He'll give me what I want. But for some of you, you love Christ. You love God. And yet still, it's difficult for you to understand why are these things happening. Well, the answer is because God, He loves your faith. He cares about your faith more than you do, more than you're able to. If you were in charge of your faith, it wouldn't be pretty. If you were in charge of refining yourself, it wouldn't be what you need. It would only be what you wanted. Consider it a joy that God is concerned about your faith. That trials prove that God wants and is concerned about your faith. The proof of your concern over your faith is manifest when you encounter various trials and respond joy. If you're concerned with your faith, then you want your faith to grow and you will accept belief. So it's not masochism. It's not looking at the trial and finding joy in the trial. It's looking at the trial and looking into the eye of the storm and finding the purpose of the trial. That's what the joy is. So God is not calling you to be joyful because it happened. He's calling you to be joyful because of why it happened. Faith grows through trials because trials force us to look outside ourselves and to find strength and encouragement and comfort outside of ourselves. This is the very opposite of what we want to do and the very opposite of what the world does. The world has little hells. Every painful problem and issue is a little hell. There's, in, in that sphere of little hells, there's different kinds. There are little hells that are just very little and little hells that are brutal and painful in this life. But the world is seeking and attempting to find any sort of heaven outside of Christ. Turning to any other thing that will save them from their hells. Whether it's drugs, whether it's, it's a divorce, it's immorality, it's more food, it's more leisure. These are all little saviors that will save me from my little hell. The world is concocting little miniature Jesus all over the place to rescue them from little miniature hell. It will not work, it cannot save, and it is not long-lasting. And that is not how we can ever look at our trials. But rather, what is the, the greatest need is to see big hell and then see big Christ, a big God who rescues us from a big problem. That is His goodness. That is what we look to. We look to Christ. We look to His sovereign, good grace in our lives. Because just as He rescued us from the real hell, safely bring us to Himself. But He's using that through these trials. That's why we have to be joyful. We must have x-ray vision. We must know that God is sovereign and is good and He's behind every trial. And we are to know that these trials are divinely appointed, according to verse 3, for the testing of our faith so that we will learn to persevere. Number three, lastly this morning, know why. Know why you need endurance. Know why you need endurance.
Verse 4, And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Alright, if your mouth is not watered this morning, if you're like hearing and you're listening and you're understanding, but the drool is not coming out of the side of your mouth, bring on the trials, I understand. My heart is the same. There's something seemingly lacking in facing trials just so that you can grow stronger. And that's what James, in a sense, is saying. You know, he's talking about our faith in this trials of perseverance. But there's something in this. It's not enough to just stir our hearts. There's something seemingly lacking in facing trials just so that you can grow stronger. This is probably... I should probably scratch this out, but this is the best I can do. It's like those guys who, they go to the gym, right? They go to the gym, I go to the gym, and next to me on my left and on my right are these huge guys with huge muscles. They're benching like 400 pounds and doing stuff. You know what? After they leave the gym, they go sit behind a desk, and they don't use their muscles at all. You know, they're not professional football players, they're not these huge, strong guys that after they go work out, they're moving boulders and you know, picking up houses and getting kittens out and exercising these huge muscles. No, they go and you know, they're a salesman or they do something and they don't even use their muscles. Oh, their muscles are all for show. It's all so they can wear a tight t-shirt. It's all so they can walk around puffed up with a big chest. And look at me, man. Right? But that... If it's just to persevere, what's the point? What's the point? Well, there is a much greater reason to endure a trial than just to have great perseverance. Verse 4 tells us, the perfect result, the perfect result of this, there is a greater result than just persevering. You could translate it as mature work or perfect work or end work. But the idea seems to be simply the end result. James is saying, let endurance have its end result. This perfect, complete, that is it, perfection, completion, a lacking in nothing. The word perfect speaks of maturity and the sense of a ripeness and a richness that comes from staying on the vine as long as possible. Man, that's sweet word picture. The word, I'll say that again. Perfect speaks of a maturity and a ripeness and a richness comes from staying on the vine as long as possible. It's true of the, the orange that has remained on the tree and it has, it has weathered the storm through the summer, through the winter, ripening, bulging with juice and fruit inside. And, and the wind and the storm and everything that's gone around it has attempted to pull that orange off the tree. And yet it stayed there. And the farmer, he's not plucked it yet. He's not plucked it yet. Because what a farmer does is he knows. He knows when it's time to take the fruit off the tree. He knows when the fruit is at its greatest ripeness. He, he, could, he could have taken that bud off the tree right when he saw it sprouting. Or he could have waited a couple months until that you know, orange is not orange at all, but it's dark green and it's hard. 
Or we could have waited even a couple more months when it's, it's bigger and it's uh, faded when you bite into that and it's sour. But the farmer, he knows exactly when it's time to take the orange off the tree. God is the farmer. God is the tender of our lives. See, God, He doesn't grow the orange for the orange's sake. This is really the issue to look at. God doesn't grow the orange for the orange's sake. He grows the orange for His sake. He grows the orange for His benefit. For His glory. He saves men and women not just so that they don't have to go to hell. He saves men and women for His glory. For His namesake. For His pleasure. And He will not pluck you from the tree while you are still green and sour. He will pluck you from the tree, i.e. He will remove you from the trial when it has brought you to fruition, when it has brought you to the fullness where you are juicy, where you are ready to give Him the most glory that He can possibly get from you out of this trial. That could be a week. That could be your whole life. But God determines when it's time to pluck you from the tree. That is a sweet picture of Christian maturity. The saint who faces trials with joy does so knowing that God will confirm him to the fullness of Christ. That's this for the Christian. All the fertilizer, all the hanging on the tree, all these, whatever, these time issues. What, what's the real ripeness? The ripeness is what we've spoken of so many times. It's the maturity, it's the completeness of Christ. Christian maturity just to say glorification, it's, it's too ambiguous. Glorification is specifically being conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we will preach this to our own hearts until we die. God puts you in a trial, in a crucible, to conform you to the greatest possible good He can give you. That's Jesus Christ. The longer you're on the tree, what you have to know is, that you're there because God is conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. And that should be our greatest desire. To be like Christ, to be mature, to know God as friend, to walk with Him, to remain attached to the vine and be filled up with Christ-like wisdom and holiness and maturity. That's, that is the fruit. Satan duped Adam and Eve to take the forbidden fruit. And it God is urging you and I to the bitten fruit, to, to remain in the trial and see that there is a sweetness and a fullness, a Christ-likeness that could not otherwise come except through the trial. That's right, exegesis. That's right interpretation of your life. And so he says, Come, attach yourself to me. Be made in the person I intend you to be. Painful, yes, but full of joy at the end. And that, that's what should bring the drool to the corner of the mouth. It's not the trial. It's the result of the trial. Look at the next word there, complete. Look at this word, complete. That you may be perfect and complete. speaks of wholeness. It's an object that has all its parts intact. It's a word that's used uh, in the Septuagint, even the New Testament, referring to a whole unblemished animal. Such animals were to be unblemished and whole. They were to be offered up. The Old Testament demanded that animals be complete, injured, 
or deformed in any way, but eat whole. And here it is used in an essence of a believer who should be whole, pure, so that he can forgive his sacrifice. God is not concerned with the bulls and goats. God is not concerned with the spotless animal. God is concerned with the holy and pure heart. That's what we offer to God. And what is interesting is that the words, let it have, is a command. He says, let it have. And let endurance have. You are to let the trial carry out its purpose. You are to let the trial carry out its purpose. You are to look to God, rejoice in what He is doing, and look for the good that the trial is producing in you. Let the trial be ended by God and not by yourself. See, there are sinful ways to end a trial. There are ways where even believers, and that's what we wrestle with in our hearts, right? Is we're, we're scheming, we're trying to figure out, how can I get myself out of this? And yet that's wrong interpretation. It's, what is God teaching me through this? And what is going to enable me to persevere through this? It's of Christ. Not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, but it's of Christ. If you seek to escape the self-preservation, if you seek to escape the trial God has placed in you, you're ultimately shortcutting God's greatest plan in your life, Christ-likeness. And then you're shortcutting in yourself what should be your greatest joy, is Christ-likeness. For the Christian, trials do not mean destruction, it means life. And so with that, James can say, consider it all joy. Consider it all joy because God is concerned with something far greater than your mere physical growth. He is concerned with your soul. He wants you to be lit aflame in His presence forever, not as a wet wood, but as holy incense burning for His glory. It is God's great love for His glory first and foremost that brings Him to test your faith so that you might be purified for His glory and for His namesake. And knowing that God's greatest concern for you is to become Christ-like, to be made holy and pure, and to know that test trials are the means which He produces, that, then we not complain, but on the contrary, must be joyful. The Gospel, the Gospel, Jesus Christ, pierced through for our transgressions, crushed, saves us from what the wrath of God, the wrath of God He saved us from. Again, the best I can do. You're in an airplane. And you get the plane blows up or something, and you have to you have to evacuate. You know you're five miles up in the air. All of a sudden you're falling headlong to earth. You know terminal velocity, 180 miles an hour head first toward the earth. And all you can think about is what's awaiting you at the bottom. All you can wait. All you can think about is five, four, three, two, one, and splat. Just destruction and doom is rushing at you at 180 miles an hour. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this angel grabs you. He grabs you fiercely. You're going 100. He just grabs you. He just jolts you. And he stops your plummet to the earth. And he, he begins to descend and he, he sets you on the earth. What are you going to do? You look at your arms and there are these bruises on your arms. Because he grabbed you so... Your neck is jolted and you have whiplash. You can say, Man, you messed me up. You beat me up, man. Why would you do that? say, thank you. 
can't believe what you just did. I don't know why you did it. I, I owe my life to you. That's what a trial is. God rescuing you and I from the greatest pit. And even still rescuing us. And He, he bruises us. He wounds us. And yet, it's for your good. It's for your joy. So with that, I want to just conclude with just a few maybe just exhortations, applications. Just how to handle our trials. Seeing God's goodness, seeing what He is wanting to do through these trials. Somewhat general. But the first thing I would encourage you to do is look, think holistically about your trials. Think holistically about your trials. Holistically, what what I mean there is, think outside of just your own life. Think outside of just your own self in the trial. Right? What's the danger of trial? Right? Myopic. Come looking at yourself. Internal eyeballs. Inward focus. So avoid the danger of thinking that this trial has only your own sanctification in mind. And there's an infinite number of reasons God God brings trials. Joseph could say his whole life. My brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He could say that his whole life. He didn't just say that at the end. He was saying that, I believe, the whole time he was in prison, the whole time he was falsely accused. My brothers, they hate me, they despise me, but God, he's meaning this and intending this for my good. And yet, it went beyond that. At the end of the trial, he was able to say, God intended this not just for my good, but for the millions Ultimately, for the gospel. Preserving the Jews alive. Paving the way for Christ to come. And so we've got to look outside. Avoid the pitfalls of thinking that God brings trials into your life just so that your faith can be refined. You must fight against thinking of your trial as simply being about you. The reality is you just happen to be one of the infinite number of reasons why the event has happened. It's not just for your faith. What's happening to you is you're an application of the sovereignty of God. So you would think yourself into utter despair if you believe that God allows even horrible things to happen just to teach us a lesson. If God takes away whatever it is that you cherish and all you can say is God had to teach me the hard way, then you've missed it. So it's not your job to figure out the why He's done it specifically, but to know why He's done it generally. Interpreting it through the Scriptures that God has intended this for your life for your good and for most of all His glory. So do not think all this happened because of me or for me. Do think God wants to use this event He has ordained to purify me and strengthen for His glory. Isaiah 48.11 For my own sake I will act for how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another. Secondly, look to God for His tender mercies. Right? These are general, but look to God for His tender mercies. Without trials, we would not personally know the comfort and mercy of God. We would not know the comfort and mercy of God. There's a difference between the way I respond to Lydia in her owies versus how mommy responds to Lydia's owies. 
So this is my weakness. I'm telling you, like, I'm not a compassionate man. I need to grow in that. So Lydia gets an owie, and mommy's compassionate. Daddy is just like, hey, get up, get back on the bike, right? Let's go. Get on the tricycle, right? I just, I try to push. Let's push. But, so when she gets hurt, she doesn't come to daddy. She goes to mommy, because mommy's compassionate. You know, well, compassion is not about good in womanhood. It comes out the heart of God. And God, he afflicts us willingly so that we would learn of who He is. We would learn of His compassion. We would learn of His loving kindness. We would learn of His tender mercies. He is the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1.3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds, Psalm 147, verse 3. He tells us to cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us, 1 Peter 5.7. He restores your soul, Psalm 23, verse 3. He is tender in mercy, Luke 178. And so God so desperately wants you to understand His heart that He afflicts you so that you will know His compassion and His goodness and His mercies. So look to God for His mercies. And finally, understand that faith is a gift. Understand that faith is a gift. Faith in God cannot be taken for granted. Faith in God cannot be taken for granted. There are very few people who can look at a trial and rejoice. Why? Because that's supernatural. It's God-enabled. It's gospel-empowered. And to have that kind of faith is a gift from God. and He wants you to have it. If you are failing in your trials, it's because... Your faith in God is being taken for granted. It is because your faith in God has grown weak and man-focused rather than God-focused and God-saturated. And God will not allow idols to remain in your heart. And if you treasure things more than you treasure God, He will faithfully remove them to produce faith in Him alone, no matter how painful it might be. It will never be as painful as realizing that God was just a genie. He was a genie in a bottle. You rubbed Him and you got what you wanted. And yet what you got was empty. God will deliver. He will remove those from you. And your pain will be turned to joy if you believe that God is completely sovereign and in control of all things. Let me say one random thing here. Idol can turn into a temptation. God's God's intended purpose of a trial is always for your good. But you can take that trial and turn it into a temptation of self-loathing of, of just constantly be consumed and you it becomes this vortex, this void, this black hole where it sucks you in and you can't get out. Again, why you must look to God. He is bringing you in this darkness so that you will turn to the light. Oil companies are hunting like mad to find the, the next space, the next place of oil, the next big reserve. And to strike this oil, they have these massive drills, incredible drills that must bore deep into the heart of the earth. There are drills that can dig miles and miles and miles into the earth. Sometimes it takes years and years for these drills to finally strike the precious oil. And so it is with faith. It's with trials. God uses these drills, if you will, into your heart tears up the surface. It, it, it pockmarks the terrain. And it digs deep into your heart and it hurts. 
And yet, God intends to strike in what He wants to find. He intends to strike the oil. He intends to strike the joy. He wants to find not lifeless idols, but living faith. He uses His master machinery to pull out the fullness of Christ in you. He wants you to know for sure that Christ is the center of your heart. He wants you to know for sure that what's in your heart is the riches of Christ, not anything else. So, I encourage you, exhort you, whether today or tomorrow or the days to come, that you would take this proper exegesis, proper interpretation of Scripture and apply it to your own life and interpret your own life into the great goodness behind all the trials He brings. Let's pray. Lord, we know that behind a frowning providence resides a smiling face. Lord, You have come and You have freed us from the greatest trial we will ever have faced. That trial of standing before You, being on trial, having no righteous judge, having to defend ourselves for our sin and our transgression and having no excuse. Lord, we would immediately have pled guilty. Guilty. Guilty would have been what comes from our own lips and guilty would have been the verdict from Your lips. And yet the Gospel brings us the paraclete. It brings us the lawyer who stands next to us. Not seeking to manipulate the judge with fancy words, but to win over the case with his own blood. So that, Christ, you can say, this man is righteous to what I have done. O Lord, the greatest trial of all is finished. What remains, Lord, are small trials that You are using to conform us into the greatest gift of all, Your Son, Christ-likeness. And so, Lord, I pray for myself, for my brothers and sisters, the men and women in this room, that, Lord, they would be able to exegete and interpret their, their lives correctly and to see the eye of the storm, to see the calm that lies behind the clamor. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you concern for our faith is greater than our own. And that, Lord, you will cause all things to work together for the good of conforming us into the image of your Son. Let us receive that. Let us rejoice in it. In your name we pray.